You are listening to The Pulse, Rod Murray's e-learning tech podcast. Number 202, Michelle Weiss of National University. That teaser was from Vivaldi's Concerto No. 1 in D Major, The Spring Concerto. So I thought that would be appropriate. I hope you enjoyed the full piece at the end of my podcast. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by D2L. You may know their main product, the Brightspace Learning Management System. I, of course, would only accept sponsorship from companies and products that I am very fond of. So please check out their website at d2l.com slash pulsepodcast to learn more. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle is Rods Pods. As always, I post links to the things we talk about on my show notes website at www.rodspulsepodcast.com. My interview today is with Michelle Weiss. She's the Vice Chancellor of Strategy and Innovation for National University. NU offers over 75 programs and four-week classes designed to help students reach the goals while balancing a busy life. They are a pioneer in online education. They've offered online classes for over 20 years, as well as classes on-site at locations across California and on select military bases nationwide. We discuss Michelle's background, the history of National University, the innovator's dilemma, which she's famous for writing about, as you'll see, National University's unique four-week terms, which was initially designed to support military students. We talk about their partnership with Amazon, the unique nature of their military and working adult populations, and what are right-sized learning experiences. They do one-on-one, hybrid, and fully online modalities. We talk about problem-based learning, badges, micro-credentials, and certificates, and what they call the next-generation degree. They have a very interesting AI-powered career navigation tool called the Skills Compass. So I'm sure you'll get a lot out of listening to Michelle Weiss. I also have a link to her book called Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Michelle Weiss. Michelle, thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. I'm really anxious to get caught up in what you've been up to since we talked last, uh, 2015. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I hadn't heard of National University. <laughs> I understand you're, you're with them now. And um, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit, well, first of all, a little bit about yourself and how you arrived there and maybe a little bit about the history of National University. Sure. Um, so uh, previously, I have been the chief innovation officer at places like Southern New Hampshire University and Strata Education Network. I was doing some strategy consulting for places like Imaginable Futures and the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Um, And since I last spoke with you, I wrote a book called Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. And so National also kind of came on my radar um, uh, a little over a year ago, and um, they are definitely a school that is seeking to build more of a national brand. It has the aspirations of of building that brand. Right now, it's kind of more known in California, in Washington State, where we have another affiliate university called City University of Seattle. 
uh, and then also has quite a presence in Arizona with North Central University. Um, so the system as a whole kind of governs these three different bodies. Um, and uh, the hope is over time to sort of merge into a more sort of, uh, a, you know, a, a fully fleshed out kind of online university that kind of offers everything from sub-baccalaureate micro-credentials all the way through uh, PhD programs. Um, and so the thing that really kind of uh, got me excited about National is uh, partly one of the one of the reasons was actually because it is a little bit under the radar. Um, as you know, with with things like the innovators dilemma, when you actually have quite a bit of success and sustaining innovations happening, it's actually very difficult to innovate from within. And with all of the building blocks that national national university system has, I was really excited about thinking of what we can do differently that maybe some of the mega online universities cannot do because they have actually sort of benefited from the 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 scaled success that they've um, that they've they've seen over the over the last decade. Um, when you get into that kind of successful incumbent position, sometimes it can get very difficult just because you get locked into your business model and you're your value proposition is sort of driven by that business model and it becomes very hard to innovate that. So this is kind of a different, this is kind of a different um, opportunity here. And that's, that's what I was really excited about. Well, I'll tell you uh, what you said about that, uh, you know, the uh, innovators dilemma and how hard it is to change uh, in, you know, from the, uh, in your legacy system, that certainly rings true with my university. Um, uh, it's no secret. I, I, I was hired 12 years ago at the uh, University of the Sciences, uh, mainly to help them go online. <laughs> it took 10 years to get them moving in the right direction where we launched a, a totally online separate division, which, you know, where we they brought in a new uh, vice president. We were giving uh, given autonomy to to really build it on our own with not have to go through, you know, approving every course, although we we actually did have some rubber stamping with our existing uh, faculty senate, but uh, I understand how difficult that is. So I, I, you know, it's 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 a hard thing to do. Yeah, one of the really interesting pieces here is um, National University, uh, the specific university under this kind of umbrella organization. Uh, it started off as a veteran-founded university, and one of the first presidents was really trying to figure out how do we make this learning experience more doable, especially for folks who are going to be deployed. And that's where they came up with this four-week model, which is kind of unique across universities where you can kind of get that sort of bite-sized piece of learning and move forward. And especially for working learners today, that's definitely something that seems very appealing uh, in terms of being able to manage uh, manages kind of work. It's also one of the reasons why uh, we were able to kind of create a partnership with Amazon in their in their newest sort of initiative of of making higher education free for seven hundred fifty thousand of their warehouse workers. They love the idea of that kind of smaller, tighter package of learning, especially when you have to work around things like the holidays or Amazon Prime Day. There are ways to. <laughs> Right. There are ways to sort of cordon off those kinds of times so that people can focus on the work and then come back to the learning. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that uh, piece about uh, working uh, 
getting started out working with uh, veterans. Uh, how much is, is it uh, an issue to, um, or how, how do you handle giving them credit for a lifetime experience? Is that is that something that, that your school does? I know that's very important with, uh, with veterans. Yes. So I think we do a, a great job with our military population. But in general, if you think about the larger challenge for working adults who have many different jobs, have many different kinds of caregiving responsibilities and all these different kinds of hidden credentials they've accumulated over time, but they're not formalized through any sort of diploma or degree, that's actually going to be the work of all universities to figure out for the future is we really need to start orienting ourselves towards building kind of the infrastructure for continuous returns to learning. Uh, in order to do that well, we have to be able to do sort of prior learning assessments much more dynamically. Right now, it's a little bit haphazard the way that every university does this differently. Um, and there's no standardization, right? There's no kind of understanding if you're a working adult, how it's gonna translate uh, into future success for you at a university. So the hope here, and this is a lot of the stuff that's kind of we're taking from my book and trying to translate it into what we offer as a different kind of value proposition for learners is instead of kind of offering up the university experience as a one and done sort of thing or a big piece of learning, right, where you go for a large bundled degree program, some working learners just need a little bit. They just need maybe to acquire four different skill sets or 10 different competencies, and they need an understanding of what those gaps are that they have to fill. So this is one of the things that we want to do for our learners is to help them understand, you know, where they are today relative to where they want to go and how they fill just that gap and no more, right? We don't want to upsell them necessarily something they don't need, but we want to give them that kind of right-sized learning experience so they can make progress and advance in the workforce. And that's a very different kind of model than what sort of traditional higher ed has been set up to do. Yeah, for sure. In fact, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, how has uh, higher ed failed in this regard? I mean, what, what are, are there any uh, promising, you know, changes happening in higher ed where they can really address um, lifelong learning and, and, and uh, you know, turning out graduates that, that can get a job? I mean, or is this just, you know, the purview of, of institutions like yours and, and other online programs? I think probably where we can do much, much better is putting real action behind terms like meeting learners where they are, right? I think it, those kinds of turns of phrase are really beautiful and it's what we aspire to do. But when we actually look at how we're set up, we're still kind of making people force fit their lives into this rigidly linear system, right? We're not still making those experiences quite flexible enough or asynchronous enough. Um, we also just don't have, we're not leveraging the different kinds of tools that exist that help us understand truly what skill sets people bring to the table, right? And part of that, where we have truly, I think, failed in within post-secondary education is in the assessment area, right? There's a void in the ed tech space uh, as well as the workforce tech space of truly understanding how someone can prove that they can do the work, even if they may not have the precise credential that's required 
in the job description. And we don't have great mechanisms for that. And we saw that when the pandemic hit and we saw different, you know, parts of our industry just shut down. There was no mechanism available to help people take what are truly transferable skills and then port them into a different or adjacent domain. We should be able to do that better. But because we lack the right sorts of ways of understanding how someone can perform and prove that they can do this work, um, that's where we see just incredible stuckness in the system. I had an interesting experience recently. I I was a judge for the uh, Cody Awards uh, for... And I was introduced to, you know, my focus, my whole career has been higher ed, but a number of the uh, applications that uh, we looked at were uh, K-12. And um, I was thinking to myself, boy, higher ed could learn a lot from how things are happening in in K-12. I mean, they have some wonderful educational uh, software that, uh, you know, adaptive learning and you don't necessarily have to take a test at the end because they know exactly how you're performing when you're doing these skills. Now, granted, the, the subject matter is probably a lot straightforward. I mean, I can, you can see how uh, companies like Newton, you know, how they can automate uh, teaching mathematics. I mean, that's pretty straightforward and they can lead people down the certain paths depending on how they perform. I'd be interested to know what National University is doing in, in regards to that sort of thing, and and you, you mentioned um, maybe not being asynchronous enough. Are your online programs are are they hybrid? How, how do they work? So we had a whole mix of of modalities, and and within our system, we offer both kind of group or cohort models, as well as an interesting kind of master's and PhD level um, one to one model, where the student is kind of paired directly with their their faculty uh, member. And what we are trying to do, and we also did offer hybrid models as well. Um, And now we're trying to more fully shift into fully online. Uh, I was wondering if you're working towards any sort of adaptive learning in your your async uh, programs. What we're trying to do, so one of the things you just pointed to is how it's sometimes a little bit easier to assess in certain disciplines versus others. And when we think about the kinds of skills that are really going to be our competitive advantage in the workforce, they're often more of those human skills, right? As we think about automation taking over more and more jobs, one of the things that we have to consider is that those transferable skills or those human skills are going to be the things that actually define our edge over robots or computers. But that's also one of the hardest things to teach, right? Um, And it's what we aspire to, to provide through a liberal arts education, but we don't necessarily know how to codify exactly what is going on when we are sort of scaffolding learning in that way. We kind of look at this sort of broad-based educational pathway and believe that these will cultivate great problem solvers of the future. And I think one of the things we have to kind of work on more deliberately, and I think what also K-12 does a little bit better than higher ed right now, is think about problem-based learning, right? Think about real-world challenges that we can help our learners orient toward. And in the process of trying to solve these kinds of 
grand challenges or big problems or wicked problems in the world, you realize how deeply interdisciplinary everything is, right? That you're not solving a problem in a specific discipline, but you have to understand that every problem you encounter in the future is going to have tentacles in every kind of discipline, right? And that you, in the context of solving that problem, you understand what principles come into play and when you need to deploy certain kinds of skill sets. And I think that's the work ahead that we really need to think about really deliberately is instead of kind of relegating project-based learning to specific projects or capstone experiences, how do we do this systematically across the entire curriculum so that you know, we can actually be truly cultivating those, those transferable skills, those human skills that, you know, if someone makes it through this program, a future employer knows that this is someone who can truly think on their toes and be able to enter into, you know, the most highly ambiguous circumstance and exercise judgment, right? Because those are the kinds of core skill sets we need in people for the future, but we haven't yet figured out how to truly cultivate the pathway there. Interesting. That's very reminiscent in my mind. I was always, uh, you know, in academia uh, related to um, healthcare and uh, worked at uh, Jefferson Medical College. And in the late 90s and 2000s, uh, there was a big shift away from discipline specific uh, learning to more um, integrated learning, like you were saying, you know. you know, instead of, you know, spending a unit on the pharmacology of the heart and then maybe not returning to that, uh, you know, until you got your clinical years, you know, they, they shifted um, to a more interdisciplinary learning. And when you when you talked about the heart, you brought in the physiology, the pharmacology, the anatomy, you brought everything in at once. So I, I can understand how that's, uh, that's a difficult task and it gets, it takes, uh, you know, uh, faculty been used to teaching in a certain way mm-hmm. and they have to they have to be multidimensional themselves in order to be able to, to teach other or bring, bring a team approach into uh, to teaching. Yeah. One of the best examples, I remember seeing this a few years ago when um, Sal Khan was creating a summer school program in, um, in Northern California. And I visited the classroom and it was a bunch of seventh graders learning how to build robots. And it was so interesting listening to the teachers because they had set up this beautiful curriculum. They had sort of scaffolded what they were going to kind of lead the learners through and kind of get them to the point where they could build their own little Lego battery powered robots. And nothing went according to plan. As soon as the kids entered the class, there were all these YouTube channels also set up with with different kinds of tutorials. Basically, the kids wanted nothing to do with the curriculum and just started building. And they just started iterating and they started messing up and then they would get stuck. And then they would fast forward through the YouTube program, find exactly what they needed, get through, like unlock that problem and then keep going. But it was it was just so perfect because it's it's very much, you know, like how can we engage our learners in some sort of productive struggle where they are engaged and excited about trying to solve this problem and then they hit a point where they can't go any further and it's in right in that sort of just in time moment that you sort of say, well this is where you need to understand this calculus principle or this is where you need to understand, you know, design thinking principles or whatever the thing may be. Um, then it just makes so much more sense to a learner. Um, okay. So I just, I loved, I loved sort of seeing that in action. 
Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's where learning really, really takes place, you know, uh, when you get the hands on. I mean, that's the way I learn things. I just start doing stuff and then find help when I need it. Yep. When, when I looked at the National University website, t- talked about um, teaching uh, towards the jobs of the future. What are those jobs? How would you describe them? So it's obviously very difficult to pinpoint, you know, jobs that don't exist yet. But I think what we're trying to build toward is precisely this idea of cultivating these best problem solvers in the world. And what that will likely entail is a re-envisioning of what we're calling sort of a next generation degree. So, you know, typically when you think about the sort of mixture of courses in a degree program, it's often some version of gen ed plus your specialization. But I think we're starting to realize that there's also this sort of next generation set of literacies that people need um, in certain contexts. And, you know, sometimes you need just a little bit of data science literacy or an understanding of machine learning or cloud computing, or, you know, there's various, various kinds of literacies that you may not necessarily need to know in depth but you need to know enough to be dangerous and to market yourself as an eligible candidate for for a future role. So we're really trying to think about how do we truly build the future of education to meet the future of work? And for many learners also, especially as we think about younger younger folks who may be more risk averse, not necessarily, or or maybe questioning the ROI of, of of a full degree program, how do you then think about sort of building the future of learning to meet a very different kind of future of earning? Because our notion of a career might not be what they're necessarily uh, envisioning for themselves. And so that really means being able to not only sort of offer these kinds of next generation uh, learning experiences, but also figuring out the different sized learning experiences that folks may need. Um, And those are different kinds of, you know, I think, when, when we hear terms like stackable credentials, you actually don't see a lot of this really coming to fruition um, in, in really understandable ways. And so how do you truly get to the right size or bite size piece of learning that someone may need? Um, that's really difficult to do because it requires great modularity. It requires the ability to pull pieces of learning out and still make them make sense in a different context. That requires a lot of kind of design um, expertise. And so that's, that's something that we're really, uh, trying to focus our attention on. Yeah, that, that's, that's very important. Uh, and I know it's very hard near the beginning of my tenure at uh, the university of the sciences. Uh, I remember hearing, uh, going to a seminar and, um, someone from, I think it was, it was part of the uh, pharmaceutical business program. So there was somebody from, you know, a big pharma who uh, had retired, and and he said, you know, students who are graduating now, they're they're gonna, they're going to have ten different, not just jobs, but ten different careers throughout their lifetime. And you know, how do you, how do you train for that? How how do you move forward? So, another thing I I saw when I when I was doing the Cody Awards uh, was how K twelve uses badges and different kinds of certificates and gamification. Is that something that that you're doing uh, in for adult education now? Um, so, real quick before I go into badges, uh, just because uh, this this idea of sort of ten jobs or ten careers, 
what's really interesting is um, early baby boomers today actually experience on average 12 job changes by the time they retire. So it's not kind of the stereotype that we think of where someone stays 40 years in one company, gets their gold watch and retires. And even with our baby boomers, we're seeing this, this trend. And then if we think about even our lifespans extending just a little bit longer, because they are every single year, um, what does that mean in terms of if, if baby boomers are experiencing those 12 job changes, does that mean it's 20 or 30 for the rest of us, right? That's, that's an incredible number of transitions we need to get right for people and make more seamless because right now it is, it is not easily navigable. Um, so that's just one quick thing, but in terms of, (laughs) in terms of how you, so badging is kind of an interesting phenomenon where in many cases, They're often built on the supply side. So on the post-secondary or the K-12 side, they're not necessarily driven specifically by the employer. Or sometimes when they are built by the employer, they're often functioning internally within that employer as a certain kind of system of badges that doesn't always transfer across company boundaries or across state boundaries. So that sort of legibility of those badges is something that we have to really think through. And I think that's why there's a tremendous amount of attention being put on things like the Google certificates, right? Or when Salesforce is creating a program like Trailhead or these different kinds of programs that are these different kinds of major enterprises that are building their own certificate programs. AWS is another example, right? These different kinds of certificate programs those almost have more meaning right now because they're being driven by the employer and the employer saying, this is what I need. And this is how you prove to me that you have these skills versus the post-secondary provider promising that this person maybe has those skill sets, but the employer actually doesn't know how to read, read that. And so that's, that's kind of the, the link that hasn't necessarily been sort of bridged yet. Um, but that's why there's so much traction, so much interest in these other kinds of certificates that are that are emerging from the companies themselves. I see. Yeah, very interesting. You know, one of the one of the podcasts I did recently was a company called Accredible that um, provides c- certificates for universities and even at the badge level. And I thought this is something that's really, really needed. Um, you know, from a marketing standpoint, um, it gives the students something to brag about, and it's something that's uh, that's authenticated through the blockchain. So, mm-hmm. you know, that should carry them well into the future. And um, and when they 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 brag about their particular credential they got, uh, it's it it uh, sort of helps a uh, you know credible build their build their business. But uh, I thought this is this is where it's it's gotta gotta go. Is this something? Um, I know it's, it's it's such a um, you know a, AI and and blockchain and machine learning is uh, it's all over the news and it seems like if you know if you want to build a business you have to mention one of those terms you know <laughs> is this something that you see is uh, making more of an impact in in education? Yeah, I mean, I think folks like Concentric Sky have been working on this for a while with things like Badger Pathway, where we're starting to realize that people are acquiring. Uh, or, or going through different kinds of learning experiences at all different kinds of venues. And so do you, how do you actually put them in one place and make them 
actually amass into something meaningful to a future employer? How do you, how do you get at that? So how do you build a pathway out of this mixture of, you know, micro credentials or certificates and degrees um, and work experience? Uh, so, so it is really important that we start to kind of think about that. There's also a lot of energy around, you know, these learner, um, you know, employer records where, where it is something that is kind of verifiable, right? That we understand that you have acquired this piece of learning over here um, and it amounts to this. And, you know, and how do you, how do you verify that from the employer? How do you validate it from the learning experience um, or the provider, the learning provider? Um, these are all, these are all really tough nuts to crack. I think we're still kind of in our nascent phases here. Um, and it's certainly something we're going to have to figure out better because it'll help us also get to that point of being able to do prior learning assessment more dynamically if we have better understanding and better records of what, what that learning actually looks like, whether it was in a caregiving experience or whether it was in a specific employer. This is the challenge that we have today. Yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah, the whole experiential uh, issue is, is hard to hard to quantitate. And, and document um, maybe things that I'm probably not um, that knowledgeable about what's going on with terms of credentials about credits about um, accepting credits because students move around all the time you know uh, what I don't know how many students these days actually start at a school and, and end up graduating from the same school but it's it's shrinking so is there something happening in that area that uh, I guess I, I certainly may not be aware of? You know, is is there? I know there are clearinghouses, I guess, for credits, but it's it's still probably a pretty uh, manual process. Mm -hmm. And uh, is there anything happening there that that we should know about? I mean, I think some some institutions better do this better than others. Uh, it's still deeply inefficient because there is not necessarily sort of system wide or nationwide, you know standardization of how, how we do this. Um, and so when we think about this from the perspective of a working adult, who's going to come back to education to skill up or retool, we really have to think about this very deliberately because there's nothing more demotivating to someone who wants to learn and understands that they need to reskill or upskill to then have to go back over things they already know. Right. So how do we how do we actually truly assess them and understand here's where you are today and here's what you need to do so that they're not necessarily feeling like they're backtracking or being remediated or slowing down? How can they actually feel like they're accelerating and they're reflecting on all of their work and life experiences and bringing that to the table in order to, you know, gain credit and 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 make progress? So I think that's that's really critical. Uh, how do we how do we motivate instead of demotivate our learners, our potential learners? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One thing occurred to me there, you know, when when young, well, maybe not just young people, uh, they think about what's hot in terms of uh, uh, skills that are required in industry is is programming, and there's there's numerous free and and uh, paid uh, programs that teach how to code. But I take it your school is that's not a big focus. Um, uh, when somebody goes in that route and they do they uh, is there still a place for them in that in, in national university? Uh, is it something that you 
encourage or try to recruit people that have those kinds of, of skills? Absolutely. I mean, folks who I think there's a lot of evidence to show that folks who go to a boot camp first sometimes need some last mile training or some more development or sophistication of those human skills or those transferable skills. I think a lot of boot camp providers have started to realize they need to incorporate that more. So it's interesting because sometimes it can function one way where someone goes to a boot camp first, realizes they need a little bit more, um, and and we can we can certainly work with those learners. It's also important for us as learning providers to figure out, okay, especially for some of our folks who are potentially moving into majors that have higher underemployment rates, for example, how do we equip them with really marketable signals that they can bring into the labor market so they have a better shot at um, at a future job, right? So if someone's going into psychology um, and wants to really kind of maybe move into digital marketing, how do we give them these different kinds of specializations or minors or pieces of learning so that they can put those on their resume and an employer understands what that signal means? That's really important for us to do. So we're really getting kind of creative about different kinds of specializations or minors that we can add on, um, especially with potentially degrees that have a harder time sometimes translating into the language of the labor market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's certainly a challenge, but really needed, I'm sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a techie at heart, and so I'm going to ask you a couple of technical questions about um, what is your online platform? Do you use a learning management system? Is it homegrown? Or, and can you uh, tell me about any particular educational applications, uh, technologies that, that, uh, that you think are really great? Um, so across our system, we've had multiple LMS um, um, companies, and now we're sort of converging onto one, which is D2L Brightspace. Um, and so, uh, and, uh, in terms of, uh, innovations, we're really trying to, um, get very focused on this idea of a skills compass. And it's something that I write about in my book, which is this way of really trying to create fuller profiles of learners so that they understand all the skill sets that they bring to the table. Cause sometimes people have a lot of experience. They just don't know how that actually, how to articulate that and what that actually means and how that might actually help them move more quickly toward a pathway they didn't envision for themselves. So I think one of the things I've learned over my, you know, time in this space is we as humans have just a really difficult time envisioning opportunities for ourselves. We kind of think more linearly or we think about the connections from this skill to a particular industry. We're not necessarily good at understanding how these things transfer across domains and how adjacent they might be to something we never imagined possible for ourselves. And I saw this really clearly in some of the first work I did when I left academia and, and worked with service members and veterans. It was fascinating to see how sort of how, how deeply connected they saw their military experience to future opportunities in police and policing and security, but they weren't necessarily able to venture too far outside of those adjacent domains to something that they really actually wanted to do more of. And so how do we give people that visibility? 
And there's really interesting kinds of AI powered platforms out there today that are helping us do that, where we can build a fuller profile for ourselves. We can also sometimes get our hiring, our managers to actually validate some of those skills. And then we can also begin to see, hey, we have actually five pathways in line with our current skill sets. And maybe there's sort of a 30% gap that we need to fill, or maybe a 60% gap that we need to fill. But these AI platforms can show us precisely the kinds of skills I need to acquire if I want to become a product manager, or if I want to become a human resources manager, or if, if I want to become a systems network analyst. So these are really exciting because it helps us just sort of open our eyes to things we never considered within reach um, and to be able to show a future employer, right, that even though it may not look like I am your traditional candidate, I actually have all these skill sets you are requiring, right, that you need. Um, so this is this is the thing that we're really focused on in, in terms of, um, in, in terms of trying to offer something that's so deeply needed for working adults as they have to kind of, you know, remain relevant in the workforce. They have to, they have to demonstrate that competitive edge. How do we, how do we give them uh, that understanding of, of the richness of their capacities and then also the gaps they need to fill? Wow. That's very interesting. So is that, is that a, a, an application or company you care to mention? Um, sure. I mean, there's a bunch of different groups that do that. We are working with MZ Burning Glass, um, but there are groups like Future Fit, Skyhive. Um, there are other kinds of groups like this um, that do this for internal mobility pathways within employers. Um, and yeah, I write about a bunch of them in, in the book. Aha. Uh-huh. By the way, I will definitely have a link to your book on my show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe this is a good time to uh, end our our talk. This has been great. I really appreciate your time. Um, very thought provoking as as usual, and uh, and certainly, um, I wish you the best on your on your new career here at uh, National University. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the interview. So stay tuned for Vivaldi's Spring Concerto. Until next time, have a great week.
that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to give Rod feedback. You can leave comments on his blog or send email to rod at rodspulsepodcast.com. The preceding audio commentary is the product of the author, Dr. Rodney Murray, and does not represent the official viewpoint of any other institution or company. 